Hi, I'm Gordon. And I'm Fiona. We're from Gate Church International in Dundee, Scotland, and we'd like to welcome you to this week's podcast. Our goal here is growing people to bring Christ into our communities and to see you get connected with God as people and as purpose. We hope this message inspires you in your faith journey. Thank you. We come to the end of chapter 5, which we come to the end of that today. We're also continuing our series of Lancastrian preachers. Sai, we did the previous two weeks. He's from Preston and I'm from Burnley. We won 3 0 yesterday. The accent will change next week. There'll be a radical, there's going to be a radical transformation in the accent you hear from this platform next week. So you can look forward to that. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And just before we move into that, let me just say a few general things about the Sermon on the Mount. One is we must not treat it as a set of rules or just as a law that has to be obeyed. I mean, just think of it. Israel could not obey the law from the Old Testament. The things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount are even stronger. So if you can't obey that lot, what chance have you got with the Sermon on the Mount? Many of you will have struggled with maths at school. Put your hand up if you struggled with maths at school. Right, and maybe some of you who are still at school are struggling with maths. Suppose you're in that position. What is not going to work? You say, oh, I really struggle with maths. I know what I'll do. I'll go to university and take a degree in mathematics. That's not going to end well. And if we treat the Sermon on the Mount as just an additional set of rules, a more strict, if you like, Jesus, and the things that Jesus said are humanly, utterly impossible, we'll get nowhere. You see, there are two ways to live. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. We can live by the flesh, by our human nature, or we can live by the Spirit. And it says there, if we live by the flesh, by our human nature, we will not please God, we cannot please God. And then later on he says, the mindset of living by the human nature is death. But he says, the mindset on the spirit is life. So what is it? This is obviously very serious. So what does it mean to live by the flesh or to live by the human nature? Well, there are two versions of it. There's the full-blown version, and there's the Christianized version. The full-blown version is, I'm going to decide what the, how I'm going to live purely based on what I think. I'm not going to listen to anyone else. I'm certainly not going to listen to God. I'm just going to set my own... I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. And then I'm going to live my life out of my own strength or out of my own abilities. That's a full-blown version. And hopefully not many of us are into that in, in this building today. But there's a Christianized version. And that is, we take God's Word as the foundation for how we should live. And then we seek to live that life out of our own strength. And that will not work. We need to live by the Spirit. And that's got two parts to it. We take God at His Word. We take His Word as a foundation for how we should live, what life is about. And then we seek to live that life 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we need to look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a new, a new set of rules where you've got to obey this lot. If you want to get into heaven, you've got to obey this lot. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's more setting out a vision. He's saying, this is the direction that the Holy Spirit will lead you in. This is the sort of life that the Holy Spirit will be teaching you and enabling you and empowering you to live. So that's how we need to approach this. So let's go on. Let's start from 543, where it says, You've heard that it was said, Flip onto the next side, you know. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, sometimes people say that Jesus was overturning the law of Moses. That is complete nonsense. If you've got your Bibles or even on your phone, we'll be looking at Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Everything that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely consistent with the Old Testament and with the law, and some of it's just repeating what was in the law. The bit about hating your enemy, that would have been added to by men. Let me just read Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God's word actually said. The bit about hating your enemies was just added onto it. And in Exodus 23 verse 4, it says this, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, your enemy's ox or donkey, be sure to take it back to him. And if you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there, but be sure to help him with it. That's a practical application of loving your enemy. Jesus was not saying anything new. He was just saying what was always been in God's heart. And he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now again, he's not saying you need to do this in order to earn the right to be children of God. It says in John's Gospel that Jesus has given us the right to become children of God. It's not a matter of, well, I've got to love ten enemies, and then I'll be in. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this this is what the children of God live, uh, live like. This is what the life of a child of God is like. He, is so, he or she is someone who loves their enemies. You see, Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. But my thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways. And Jesus here is presenting a better vision, a better way of living. And it goes on and says, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, sometimes people say this when people, you know, someone's been on a holiday and they come back, what was the weather like? 
Always wonderful. And some people say, and my wife does this, the Lord makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Look, just because you get good weather on holiday does not mean that God is pleased with you. And just because if it rains, it doesn't mean he's displeased with you. And Si and myself who come from Lancashire, we get lots of rain there. We're very grateful that that's true. It says, God spreads his goodness everywhere to everyone. And that's what we're to be like. You know, when we think about loving your enemies, we can look, think about it in specific terms, specific individuals or instances where people might do something wrong against us. And that's important. And the bit read from Leviticus it says, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge. We need to make sure we don't do that. You know, there's a certain comfort, isn't there? When someone, if, you've, if someone has done something wrong against you, or you think someone has done something wrong against you, we're not always right. Sometimes you think someone's done wrong and actually haven't. But, but there's a certain comfort, isn't there, if we go into bitterness. For a time, it gives you know, some sort of solace to your soul. For a time. But then it starts to eat away at us. Starts to, it becomes a poison in our system. So if we ever, or whenever, because it happens, I think it happens to all of us at some points, various points in life, and we see that bitterness or resentment is arising in our hearts, we need to correct ourselves quickly before the poison really takes a hold in our life. But I want us to look at this loving our enemies much more generally. You see, God spreads his love everywhere. And we live in a time where the church or society is becoming increasingly less uh, tolerant of the church in this country. Society doesn't want to hear from the church. And you, if you, you notice how much hate there is. You know, if, you, if you disagree with someone, so often you, you'll be accused of being this phobic or that phobic, depending on what you've disagreed with. We need to make sure we don't give in to that atmosphere. We need to, we've been sent, we've been chosen by God, we've been sent by God to bring the love of Jesus to every single person in this world. Let's go on to verse 46. Now, before any of you get too excited, this does not mean this sermon is going to finish in two minutes' time. We're going on to something else after that. We're not going on over long, don't panic either, but it's not time to put your hat and coat on yet. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We see again Jesus calling us to a much better and much higher way of life. Says our love has to go way beyond those who like us. In fact, we need to look with people who might be opposed to the church, might be opposed to the gospel might be opposed to God's ways of living. 
We need to make sure we do not look on them as enemies. You see, the world's way with enemies is either to run away from them or to seek to destroy them. God's approach is to seek to save them. We need to have the same heart. As the enemy tries to get the society increasingly to go down a godless road, which leads to the, so much hurt and harm to so many people, we need to hold out the love of God for every single person in this country. You see what it says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you see what, what if you just think about that, how amazing it is. Jesus saying, be like God. We're to have the same heart. We're to have the same desires that God has. And he talks, uh, he's talking here about uh, loving our enemies. Just before the Israelites were going to go into the promised land, there are several places in Deuteronomy, I think there's about half a dozen of them, where Moses is preparing them for going out, or going into the promised land. And about half a dozen times it says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, therefore do this or do that. Remember who you were. And before we became Christians, before we chose to follow Jesus, we were enemies of God, even the nice ones among you. I know I was an enemy of God. I hated him. Some of you might have been goody-goody two-shoes people. Even if you were, before you believed in Jesus, you were an enemy of God. It says in uh, Romans 5.10, Christ died for us, reconciled us on the cross while we were still enemies of God. And any of you here who don't believe in Jesus yet, you are currently an enemy of God. Yeah, so that's not a nice thing to say. The good news is God loves his enemies. God loves his enemies. He loved me while I hated him. He loved you while you weren't believing in him. He still loved you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross while we wanted nothing to do with him. And we are to have the same heart towards every person in this country. That is what Jesus has set up the church for, to bring his love to everyone. And you know, there's, uh, we all know the parable of the sower. And sometimes people, well, they get pretty stupid interpretations of it. You know, he saw it on the rocky ground and the shallow soil and all the rest of it, and the, on the good soil. Some people say, we need to make sure we sow the seed into good soil. That is not what Jesus was saying. He's saying, this is what it's like. This is what it's like with the Word of God. You'll, sometimes you'll give out the Word of God and it will seem to do nothing. It will just get snatched away. Other times there will seem to be a response. And then that response will just fade away. And other people continue to stay alive, only just, but not really not bear much fruit. But when it falls on good soil, you get a tremendous harvest. 30, 60, 100 times fold. And he's saying, that's what it's like. So we sow the love of God as wide as we can. Some people will reject it, but some will accept it. And there's another reason why we, this sown in good soil isn't the way to go. 
because we haven't got a clue what the good soil is. Look at the Apostle Paul. The day God got hold of him, he was on his way to Damascus, breathing murderous threats. And that was the day he got saved. None of us would have had the wisdom to say, oh, there's Paul, he'll become a Christian. And come on, put your hand up if you've got people you know, and you say, oh, they're so close to come to know Jesus. And they've been so close for about 20 years. Come on, we all know people like that. And they haven't come to know Jesus. And by the way, if you do know people like that, carry on praying for them. Carry on believing that God will bring them to faith. Don't give up on them. But we don't know who's going to come to know Jesus. Because God will save some of the most amazing people. People who we would say are utterly out of it. They've got absolutely no chance and absolutely no way they're going to come to know Jesus. But that's because to come to know Jesus in our own strength is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So we're to love our enemies. So let's go into 2 Timothy. We're doing a bit of it. How do we do this? I mean, loving your enemies, it's easy to preach about it. It's very difficult to do it. How do we do it? And if you, if you think about uh, Paul, he wrote to Timothy almost at the very end of his life. You know, in Acts, we read at the end of his in captivity with the Romans. According to church history, he was released for a time. And you can guess what he did when he was released. He went preaching the gospel to more people. Then he was put back in prison. And that would be for the last time. And under Emperor Nero, he would be martyred. And he's writing to Timothy saying, this is how to live a life of service to Jesus. And if you think about his life, Paul loved his enemies. You read in Acts, what did he do? He would go to Samaria, he would go to the synagogue, and he would preach about Jesus. And how would they react? Well, most of them, they would throw him out. They would revile him. Then he would go to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. What would they do? They'd beat him up. He'd be th- he was thrown into prison numerous times. He was shipwrecked. But he continued doing it time after time after time. Why? Because he was loving his enemies. He wanted to see them come to know Jesus. He wanted to see them receive eternal life. So how do we, how do we go about this? How do, what does he tell Timothy? First of all, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now lives in you. First of all, just notice, Paul is commending women. Some people say that Paul was a misogynist. He hated women. If you look at the times when Paul gives thanks to people, expresses appreciation to people, most of them are women. You're going to Romans 16. It's the best example. There's loads of them there. Loads of them are women. And it's quite clear if you read in his letters and read in Acts that women played a significant role in the early church. And look at this, it's... Amen. (laughs) People who say otherwise haven't read the Bible with their brain in gear. And look at it, it's generational. 
If, if we are fortunate enough to have had Christian parents or grandparents, we should be immensely grateful for that. But if you are one of the first or one of the first people in your family to uh, become a follower of Jesus, start a trend. We need to start a trend. We need to, part of our heart needs to be to build up the next generation. That applies to our natural families. It applies to the church family as a whole. We should desire to see our own children and those in the church who are younger than us to know Jesus better than we do and to achieve more for Jesus than we do. We should desire to see them go further. And that's what Paul desired for Timothy. And he says, for this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of hands. God gives us gifts, and we could, this can be specific gifts, so it can be in a more general sense. We need to fan it into flame. If God gives you a specific gift, you don't just sit there with it. We need to do something with it. We need to practice it. We need to train it, ourselves in it. We need to exercise it. I say it can apply to specific gifts, but it can also apply much more generally. We've been given the gospel. Our eyes and our, of our minds and our hearts have been opened up to the goodness of God, to the goodness of Jesus, to the salvation that is in Jesus. We need to fan the fl into flame that gift that is within us, the Holy Spirit who is within us, and use it to tell other people. And it goes on in verse one of the most well-known verses. For the Spirit God gives us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Self or some versions say self-control, or other versions say a sound mind. What's our natural reaction when we are opposed? For most of us, now, there are some nutters among the congregation here. I'm not going to name you. But for most of us, our natural reaction would be to shrink back. Ooh, I don't want to offend anyone. Better keep, just keep quiet. You know. The Spirit of God is a spirit of boldness, not a spirit of timidity. And we are not to shrink back. Hebrews has a very serious warning about those who shrink back. But the Holy Spirit gives us power. It's not a power that destroys. It's not a power that hates. That's what worldly power seeks to do. It seeks to hate and destroy. God's power is a power that seeks to love and to save. But the Holy Spirit is stronger than the Spirit who is in this world. And it is the Holy Spirit who Jesus has sent to be in us and with us. So it's a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. I say the Holy Spirit will enable you to do things differently to react differently than the world does. So he goes on in verse 8 and 9. So don't be ashamed of the, testimony, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, we, we all know that Paul was a great man of God, but imagine you were alive at the time, in this about AD 60-odd, 
and you hear Paul's in prison again. There'll be some voices saying, oh, he must have, what, what, what's he done now? Why is he there? He shouldn't have done this. And, then, and people, if people, anybody stands up against, uh, against the spirit of the age, there'll always be ways, uh, grounds for criticizing them. There'll always be grounds for finding some way they could have said or done something better. We need to guard ourselves against that attitude. Because if you're going to get involved in a battle, there's going to be times when you make mistakes. So when other people get involved in a battle for Jesus, they'll always, you always find some way to criticize. We all get something wrong, do things wrong at times. We need to pray for them and not to be ashamed of them. Because they need all the support they can get. And it says, rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. That is Paul's motivational call. There's no cheap prosperity gospel here. Join me in suffering for the gospel. Why? Because Paul lived his life following Jesus and knew that what he was doing, or rather what God was doing through him, was achieving things of eternal significance. Do we want our lives to matter? You know, the day before we die, we'll have no money. Our degrees we might have got will be utterly worthless. Any reputation in the world we might have got will be utterly worthless. What will matter is what we've done for Jesus. He says, join me. But how? By the power of God. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't do it in our own strength. If it's a matter of obeying this lot and all saying, I just give up now and enjoy your life. Because we cannot do it in our own strength. We do it by the power of God. It says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. That does not mean to a prim and proper life, it means to a Jesus life. Not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace, the grace that was given to us in Christ just before the beginning of time. See, if we try to achieve these things or do things and it's, in, it's all founded in us, I'm, I'm going to do this for God, and I've, I've got the strength and the ability to do this for God, we'll pretty quickly be disappointed. He has called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done. There is nothing about our lives that disqualifies us. Or rather, there's everything about our lives that disqualifies us. But Jesus has qualified us. And it's all about God's purpose. We be called to this because it's God's purpose. It's founded in God. It's not founded in us. It wasn't our idea. It's God's idea. And He hasn't chosen us. Whatever we do for God, there'll be times we wonder, God, I'm, just, I'm not up to this. I'm not good enough for this. I've got so many weaknesses, so many failings. God chose us because of His grace. The grace which forgives us for all our sins and the grace 
which enables us to achieve things which we have no right to expect to be able to achieve. But because it's founded in Jesus, because it's founded in the power of the Holy Spirit, it will be done. And he goes on. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. When we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to do things for Jesus, there's a risk. There are times when it might cost money. There are times when it might cost careers. Some, many, well, many, some Christians in the world, there's times when it costs them physical damage, even death. But Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. When we choose to follow Jesus, we are entrusting him with our life. Every aspect of it. And there will be times when that might seem to be a very risky or even a very silly thing, stupid thing to do, to have done. But he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him. And then right on to the last verse. It says, What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. See, God has entrusted things to us. That's his nature. It's what he did right back in Genesis. See, he created the whole universe. He created the earth. And he said to Adam and Eve, you look after this garden. You have dominion over the earth. And he entrusts us with the gospel. And we are to take good care of it. We are to carry out the commission faithfully. And it says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't do it by ourselves. We don't even want to do it by ourselves. We don't even have the right motives or the right the heart for it at times. But we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And everything that God commands us to do, He commands us to do with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and pray.